All right, here we go, Mule we Deer. sound good? New Mexico Mule Deer Foundation. The best. So, um, I'll just let's just start talking, and then I'll go into the intro, and we'll okay. rock and roll from there. Sounds good. Again, Western Hunting Expo here. So, how long have we known each other? So, I oh, think... Gosh. This, I, let me st- let me stop for a second. Another <laughs> New Mexico connection sitting across from me here behind the Hoyt booth at the Western Hunting Expo, yes. Colleen Payne. Yes. You are basically the, would you call your, uh, your position the New Mexico director for the Mule Deer Foundation? What's, what's your title? Yep, I'm the New Mexico regional director, so I get to cover the entire state. Um, I'm based out of Las Cruces. We're fellow Las Cruces at yes, heart. Yes, and, um, yes, yes, yes. We love our Oregon Mountains and our Green Chili, and uh, that's just Doniana County, right? When you talk about that, all I hear is angels <laughs> singing. <laughs> it's the best. Yeah. I know. So, um, how did you, I mean, since I've known you and you've been hooked up with yeah. the Mule Deer Foundation. I started, I was trying to think about this the other day because somebody had asked me to, like, oh, how long have you been with MDF now? And gosh time goes by fast right and I think I started with them actually as a volunteer about eight years ago Um, really yeah we're getting ready for our Las Cruces banquet in two weeks and uh, with our tri-county chapter and I helped start that chapter and it's the eighth annual banquet and I'm like whoa so I started with them as a volunteer just as a committee member I want to help out I love mule deer I mean they're right our icons of the west and uh, I love mule deer hunting it's the first thing that I ever got to hunt and I've just been addicted ever since and want to help them any way I can and from there it just kind of grew more and more and there wasn't a lot of Mule Deer Foundation activity or chapters going on in the state of New Mexico at the time so we had a really good opportunity I grew up and I don't know I can't remember of one right you know growing up yep everybody hunted mule deer yep but there was okay and as an organization like nationally we're founded in 1988 so we're still a pretty new organization even nationally so So i was a junior in high school yeah yeah so i was two (laughs) okay i mean i was in third third grade um but it just kind of kept growing from there and uh, then i became the new mexico state chair the volunteer state chair and um was starting to help out with getting more people involved getting the word out more you know i was born and raised in new mexico so i knew people across the state who also grew up mule deer hunting too and it was like hey you know that there's this really cool organization that does these really fun events and you can win some really cool stuff and it supports mule deer and it was like, it was just always kind of like a no-brainer to me. Um, and then it got to the point that MDF decided to invest full-time in New Mexico and put a lot more effort onto the ground. And they hired me as the regional director, and I've been doing it four years now. Started f- Where, my where's their headquarters out of? Here in Salt Lake City. Oh, it is in Salt Lake. Okay. Yep. Okay. Which is why we have the expo mm-hmm. going on right. here in um, 13th year, I think we're here. Yeah. And... Uh, it's just been growing and growing and growing so much and the first expo i came to i was a volunteer and i was just mind blown and i was the only uh mdf volunteer from new mexico at the time this year i'm pretty sure we broke some records on getting like volunteers and stuff here i think we have uh, between volunteers donors and members from new mexico i think there's over 50 that have come through me and getting registered 
So I'm like, 50. that's 50 more people from New Mexico that came to see this at the national wow. kind of level. And it's just, I mean, there's lots of New Mexico folks that come anyways, but maybe not necessarily tied in with uh, a membership or a chapter or right. something like that. And right. so it's cool to come here too and meet other people from New Mexico and just kind of connect. And, you know, you can learn more about what's going on and kind of be able to take this kind of energy that we have here at the show back home and run with it for events and stuff going on in the state. You know, I, why don't I did an article for Eastman's Hunting Journal back when I used to work for Eastman's about the heyday of mule deer hunting in New Mexico. Yeah. And in the 60s, 70s, and even early 80s, mm-hmm. there was, um, it, New Mexico was really, really, I mean, it was awesome. The state? And I... What my research showed me, I'd love for you to give me feedback of what you're seeing now. But what I saw, and this has been 15 years ago. Mm-hmm. Golly, I'm getting old. <laughs> it, this was 2002, maybe, okay. that I did this article. Anyway, it's been a while. Mm-hmm. And uh, I, uh, what I found was the reason New Mexico was so good is just like any habitat, it's like a box. Mm-hmm. That's your habitat, mm-hmm. okay? There's a limited supply of resources, mm-hmm. space, all of these different things. There's predators. There's all these factors that lead to the success of any species. And conservation comes in there and tries to balance that. That's that's why it's so important to have organizations such as New Mexico or the, the Mule Deer Foundation to, to, to help to do that. But what I found is in, the, in that time, controlled burns were a very vital part. They did a lot of controlled burns. They also, and maybe to the extreme portion, they used to do a lot of predator control with poison. Mm-hmm. So it indiscriminately poisoned everything from a skunk to an eagle. Mm-hmm. Predators but gone. what that did was the predator, your fawn crop, did not have the fight to survive that it does when you the coyotes or you know bobcats or whatever in that that very very volatile state that they are when they were newborn. We also because of the prescribed burn, the forage would grow up. It was very manageable, very prime forage, so it was protein rich. It was all the things they needed. And what happened is we created this perfect environment, and the we actually over exploded. We actually had more mule deer than probably the habitat could sustain. I remember I grew up hunting. I killed my first mule deer at a cliff outside of Cliff, New Mexico, mm-hmm. and um, but we would hunt normally at Alma, which is just past Glenwood. If you're going right. up toward toward Reserve, and just past before you got to the Reserve turnoff, you'd, there was all, the Alma stations, yep. basically literally a the, gas station. The only thing right. in Alma. <laughs> and you'd go a little further, and then we'd go back up in there, and it yep. was and that's where I grew up it's hunting. Super cool country back in there too. And I remember as a kid. Even before I was a, I was allowed to carry a rifle, um, that you know everybody you would you would see everybody would see 170 inch deer. Now I didn't know what they were, I didn't know size, but I have looked at old pictures and I know a lot better. And you would kill a deer, and you didn't care what it scored. You didn't take a picture hardly at all. You, you know you you cut it up and you ate it, right? And so. You'd go to you'd go to Kmart, Walmart even wasn't even around at the time, right. and you'd buy your license. It came with a turkey, a bear, and a deer license. And I think you know, yep. eighteen, uh, bu- uh, twelve bucks or yeah, something. Yeah, right? and all handwritten. Right. Uh huh. <laughs> and uh, so, 
But what happened was as the forage grew, yeah. we the prescribed they, they don't do the burns. We stopped. don't do the predator control. Control mm-hmm. is just very difficult. Mm-hmm. Mountain lions, you know, um, you know what the mountain lion ratio probably is in the Oregon mountains. It's atrocious. I Insane. mean, because of that mountain lion study they did for ten years, where you couldn't hunt them, they were hitting mountain lions on seventy mm-hmm. going to Alamogordo with cars. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's that's a high density when you're hitting mountain lions with a car. And that's the scary part too. I guess at least with mountain lion populations is we're at a point now and then we're kind of seeing this across the west too with with other states having this difficulty is it's really really hard to do a population estimate for mountain lions right for how elusive they are it's not like you can just go and you know fly an area and do a survey like we do with deer and elk i mean because they're a lot more elusive right so it makes it a lot harder for us to kind of see what those predator numbers are to see if we do need to pull anything out or oh maybe we pull some tags back and kind of let the population bounce back whether it's for mountain lions or for deer um but yeah there's been a lot of areas that have just been hounded with predators and it's been played a huge impact on the success not just of of mule deer but of elk of bighorn sheep right um antelope too and Mm -hmm. so when they're doing all those fires i mean fire is just i think one of the coolest things ever it because re- we can do so much it resets it re- it's a reset button right in a, in the most positive way possible um now hot wildfires are a little bit different yeah but sure sure a, sure a controlled burn um you know they're getting it's not just all the good vegetation that's coming up that they can eat but it's also all this new cover to help protect those fawns too during fawning season protect them from the predators protect them from um you know, other animals coming around from people picking them up and messing with them. People, please don't mess with the deer. Yeah, yeah <laughs> don't feed, the, don't the, feed the deer. Yeah, please. Um, so yeah, there was a lot done, and when when all that predator management um, was going on in the '60s of them using the yeah the, the darts little capsules and, and stuff. Yeah, extremely effective, mm-hmm. and that became such a popular thing across the West that everyone was doing that and everything was doing great. So we're getting all these big deer everywhere. Um, it, it, it wasn't maybe, we didn't know what the, what the effects were gonna be from all that, right. you know? And so um, there's this really good, cool study that we've been using in our hunter's ed classes to kind of show like population des- densities and what the habitat can hold and, um, you know, our capacity and trying to explain that kind of in a simple way, but, um, there's there was a huge deer study done on the Arizona Strip that and I don't remember the years and I'm trying to replay this off of memory but um, there was a bunch of people that decided that they wanted to stop hunting in this area of the Strip completely stop it was on the Kaibab Plateau mm-hmm. stop hunting it's doing bad things we don't want any more hunting we're not going to kill any more deer well then they stopped hunting the deer population skyrocketed now we had all these deer and then all of a sudden, within a few more years, it plummeted. Right. Because like you said, you have your little box of things that can grow in there and what could be done. Well, there was too many deer on the landscape. They didn't have anything to eat. They were eating themselves at a house and home. Right. Um, predators came in, but the, there wasn't even enough predators to maintain the to balance. Maintain the balance. Right. And that's, that's the cool thing with conservation right. now is that there has been so many changes that we as humans have done over the course of of centuries and generations, right? Um, of changing 
the habitat and changing the landscape. Everyone loves living in the mountains, but so does everything else. Right. And so, you know, going in and, and disturbing that kind of natural balance, we have to make up for it in other ways. Right. And so that's why it's important to kind of still be going in um, and doing a lot of these habitat projects, which is what MDF thrives on. Right. Um, that's the mission of our organization, is mule deer, black-tailed deer, and their habitats. Right. Um, and we, without good habitats, we're not going to have healthy populations. Um, and doing a lot of these habitat projects that we're doing isn't strictly beneficial for mule deer. It benefits everything. Uh, which is all the more reason why I think we need to be doing it. You know, it's funny because if you look at mule deer versus a whitetail, and of course, I was that kid that used to get so frustrated because you'd get North American Hunting Magazine and you'd get all these magazines, and it was always about these friggin' whitetail. <laughs> yeah. And I'm like, we didn't hunt whitetail. Yeah. I mean, even even back in the day, like Pueblo Park area, there's some coos deer in there. Yeah. And we'd see coos deer, and we're like, we're not going to shoot theirs. Those are dog deer. Right. We didn't realize, you know, that that, that actually is a trophy in and of itself. But mule deer can't do what whitetail can. Whitetail will come into yeah. a uh, an urban population, and next thing you know, they thrive. Mule deer won't. They no. will move. Yep. They will leave. I always say, like, whitetail can live in a trash can. Oh, yeah. You know, they, just, they do so well. They are so good with any sort of stress. Mule deer, I, I sometimes refer to as, like, the diva of the right. wildlife world because they're extremely sensitive about everything. They're kind of at the bottom of the totem pole, and they will freak out and get nervous and stressed out about just the smallest little change. Right. And so that's also what makes it so much more important for us as conservationists to make sure that we're giving them the, the most structure that they can have um, and kind of help rebound a lot of those changes that we are are implementing that change to them. So try to keep the scales in balance. Right. right? And, and I remember the last time I hunted that before my grandpa passed away. It was we, we hunted the area probably more out of nostalgia than looking for a big deer. Mm -hmm. I think I saw maybe three bucks that were over three years old. Mm -hmm. Whereas it was so different from, you know, 15, 20 years prior to that, mm -hmm. where you know you just it was op it was opportunity after opportunity yeah. i mean we didn't even hunt the smartest way none of us will carry binoculars we just looked through our scope yeah right and then you just walked and you jumped them up and you shot them and if you didn't get a shot at that one there's gonna be another one and then we went to this you know as it started to dip mm -hmm. the deer numbers yep you know the elk actually started to increase absolutely but the deer so you know it's it's an interest it's a, it's an interesting um balance balancing act that you know you, if you talk about introducing wolves and you, you know everything affects everything else absolutely and so you have to unfortunately sometimes you do make mistakes i think in a way we the type of predator control we were doing was all there was no inclusivity. It was it killed every type of predator. All or nothing. So so we have to be able to balance that. And but then on the flip side, uh, you know the forage, it, it outgrows. They can't reach it. Right. You know what the, what they would. So you need the burns to be able to get that down. Now you got this prime forage growing up that's really nutritious. Yep. And again, the cover for the you know that cover for the yeah. fawns and different stuff and, like that. And mule deer are extremely extremely picky eaters. Mm-hmm. Um, they're not like elk. Elk will, and whitetail, they'll just go and eat everything. Um, it's kind of like an ice cream sundae that, you know, most of us would just eat the whole sundae. But mule deer are like, nah, 
I just want like the sprinkles and maybe the cherry. Right. I'm going to leave everything else. Right. So that's why, again, with the balance, it's important to have certain types of forage available for certain species right. that need those. So a lot of those browse species, um, you know, any kind of uh, weed or brushy um, plant bush, they thrive on. You know, they and they need that diversity. Right. on the landscape too you know elk do really really well in those big grassy meadows because they'll eat grass and fatten up and no problem but mule deer are just a little bit more picky and yeah. so um you know a lot with those burns and and even when we're doing um any sort of thinning projects that's been extremely implement uh, influential too because a lot of those trees are drinking an insane amount of water so are you guys going like going through and and you set those up by how many trees per square foot or, or how do you guys grid that you grid that out or when you do some type of tree thinning con you yeah. know where you step in to, to thin that out so you're allowing more wa- water to remain in the moisture which then is going to get to other plants exactly right? exactly create that lower that lower uh forage slash cover layer that when the trees come up they block sunlight out now we don't get that ground cover if you want to call it that yeah you'll see that pretty often going through like pinyon juniper kind Mm -hmm, of thickets where mm -hmm. it's just pinyon juniper there's nothing even on the ground and if we start to clear some of those trees out or um, even do some thinning underneath the individual trees you know they're not going to start drinking as as much water which is going to provide a better water table for other plant species to grow um but do you guys come in and seed any like would you once you did on the project yeah um we've done some like after fires like real severe wildfires that have just wiped out everything on that mountain um we've supported we work really really closely with um, Forest Service, with the Department of Game and Fish, with BLM. Um, so they're the ones that w- that do most of the implementation mm. of the projects, um, the management of things, because that's their land that they're responsible for managing. Uh, we don't just go in there and say, oh, we're going to take XYZ trees out and uh, we're going to do our project this way. There's a lot of red tape and uh, planning and NEPA and all that stuff that has to go through first. Um, MDF's um, really a good springboard for a funding source for a lot of those projects so when we're doing a lot of our events and banquets we're raising money to put that towards projects that we've already been coordinating with with the department specific specific that you know we're going to see a benefit to mule deer in that in that area and and like i said too it doesn't just benefit mule deer benefits everything Um, so we have to work really closely with them otherwise none of these projects would ever get done i mean without the partnerships that we have none of this stuff would happen and it that's the cool part about being here at expo too and seeing everyone come together for the thing we all love which is hunting conservation the future of that and kind of putting the the effort towards that it's like oh yeah we're 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 going somewhere we're going to get somewhere with this um and so working with a lot of those partners we're able to do kind of some big things and i brought some of these forms with me so one of the booths that we have here is actually one of our state um project booths so we've got all these different... I brought you a Colorado one because oh, awesome. you're in Colorado land now. Um, our New Mexico one of just... And this is just within the past few years of money that we have put directly towards projects. And this is $1.7 million. Wow. Since... Um, actually since 2015 because what it includes is some of the raffle and auction tags mm-hmm. um, that the Mule Deer Foundation auctions here at Expo. Right. Um, 
And then we have our raffle tag that's that's done in the summer. But um, that money goes back to Department of Game and Fish in New Mexico for them to put towards specifically towards um, deer projects. So coos deer, mule deer, um, even whitetail, because we got whitetail on the eastern side of the state too. But mule deer are one of those species of concern um, amongst a lot of the agencies now too. So they're trying to do a lot more projects for that. But I mean, we've got things from water tank developments. You know, we've we had that real severe drought that we're just starting to, you know, kind of come yeah. out of. Uh, we're starting to get to the point now, it seems like in New Mexico, which this is good news, at least for me, is um, we're hearing a lot from these agency managers and biologists, like there's enough water on the landscape now that we've been putting in artificial water sources for so many years now that we've got a small amount of distance between waters now. And mule deer need anywhere between like four to seven miles between a water source, um, you know, within their home range that they're gonna be traveling in. And so we've put so many waters kind of now out on the landscape that now we're starting to look at some other projects, whether it's maybe a thinning project, uh, maybe reseedings after fire. We're always kind of keeping that one kind of the ace up our sleeve well, because you never know when those right. wildfires are going to hit. And and then that's going to help with erosion. I mean, there's so many other factors yeah. of that we're seeing that not just not just the mule deer, but just the, the, the lay of the land. and, and The health and, of that yeah. forest yeah. is really going to need a lot right. of that. And we had some tremendous fires in New Mexico the past couple of years. So we've been trying to work, um, you know, with Forest Service on some of those and seeing what's going to come through there. Um, the big thing that, that's kind of been going on um, the past couple months that I'm really excited about and proud about. So migration corridors are mm-hmm. the big, big buzzword going on right now um, amongst agencies and states. And um, we have a, a lot of migration corridors in the northern part of the state, yeah. um, you know, of them coming down from Colorado to New Mexico. Right. Um, and that's that's been known for generations. And, every, you know, all the people that have lived up there their entire lives can tell you, yep, deer are going to come through this creek bottom on this date to this date and then they're going to go back from this date to this date but there's not a lot of data to show that surprisingly wow so um new mexico department of game and fish is working on a a few research projects right now that they colored um i don't know the total numbers but they called several elk mule deer and antelope which were part of that big secretarial order from zinke which he signed here at expo two years ago i think yeah um that 3362 and um so they're looking at, they're collaring all these animals and trying to look at these movement patterns. Where are they starting? Where are they going to? What routes are they using? Um, just to kind of get some more data points so we can identify where those migration corridors are. Because we don't want to have to go and maybe build a highway through there or um, sell a lot of that property to be developed, you know, for housing and that kind of thing. Um, so. The big project that's coming through now with MDF um, in the past couple months. So we've got several chapters across the state. Um, they do their events. They raise their money. They get a portion of that back that they can put towards habitat improvement projects. It's called their chapter awards They're programs. local They're improvement. Local. Right. They're local ones. So right. they can put it on a, on a project there in Las Cruces. They can put it in a project up in Taos. Okay. Wherever they choose, which is the cool part with MDF, is the volunteers have a say in where the funding goes. Right, that's important. Which is huge. I mean, as a volunteer myself, when I started with them, I was like, I want to know that the work that we're doing, we have a, a voice in saying where that money right. goes. Sure. And then the rest, you know, supports our national organization efforts on, on a national scale, too. But 
So I had six chapters across the state pull their, some of their chapter rewards together to help with this migration corridor study. So the department already has all these animals collared, and what we're going to look at, we're partnering with New Mexico State University um, and USGS, you know, Aggies. I got to Go. suppo support our Aggies. Um, we partnered with these guys, and they're getting us a grad student, um, or they're getting themselves a grad student, to look at habitat use of mule deer in these migration corridors. Hmm. So they're doing a lot of the tracking to look at the map of where they are. We want to know why they're using it or why they're avoiding other areas. So if we can pick um, up on some information of, you know, they're really, really hitting this draw. And if we take a, you know, an outside look at it and say, oh, well, this draw has this kind of cover or this kind of feed source, or there's a water here to here, there's no roads or whatever. And this is, you know, all kind of speculation right now. That's going to tell us a lot on how we're going to be able to improve some other areas to encourage migration routes through there, too, and avoid a lot of these vehicle collisions that we're seeing through these migration uh, routes when they start those migrations. Right. Um, and right. kind of learn a little bit more on better management, too, in some of those northern New Mexico units where a lot of those hunts are dependent upon the migration. Um, you know, right. we've got resident deer herds that are getting hunted really, really hard, and we're not getting them replenished because those deer are coming from Colorado, hanging out in New Mexico for a couple months and going, going home. Mm -hmm. You know, I, I always talked about the fact that where I hunted mule deer, there was no migration. Mm -hmm. You would yep. find those Same. deer, because yep. of the lower elevations, yep. you find those deer you know that was their winter range but it was also their summer they range. lived there their whole life right yep. and and where when i i thought it was very peculiar because i didn't hunt a lot in northern new mexico yeah i you know about as north as i went i you know really not any anywhere north of santa fe okay as far as if you look at the line and you yep. draw a line across i never hunted much up there i yep. did hunt some uh, some antelope outside of some places on the northeast mm -hmm. but one thing i did find is peculiar was when I went and especially when I started working for Eastman's Hunting Journal and I did some uh, I, I did interviewed some people on migration of deer in Wyoming yep and Colorado yeah. now those were some huge migration routes and it was so their winter range was so important their summer range so important and that migration but you would come to this bottom in February and there'd be 200 deer yeah but you you couldn't find a deer there in the summer. Yep. You know, and, and so for me, that was kind of, I was like, wow, it's I didn't really. It's crazy yeah. to think of 200 deer being in one area because of where we grew up and where we hunted our whole lives. Those deer are there, you know, all the time, but they're in small groups. Right, they're not right, right. moving around you in these big, huge groups. You go out to Coralitas, and yep. if you went rabbit hunting in the Coralitas or quail hunting, you're going to jump some deer, yep. most likely. Yep. Uh, my grandpa in the 40s shot his first deer ever behind a mountain. Really, and so when I drew that that ten tag, my my goal was I glassed from a mountain back into that yeah. some of that country before you know even and you got houses here you got the golf course over here you know I mean it's all but there was we found good bucks in that stuff and the problem was it's those cattails yep so you couldn't they, hardly get to them they love you know, that stuff but um, but I what I wanted to do is I wanted to kill a deer 
there because I knew my grandpa. That was where my grandpa in the 40s yeah. shot his first mule deer. That's cool. And I didn't get it done. With I it. didn't get it done, but I got yeah. some good bucks on film. Yeah. And my dad was with me, and that was cool. And so. So I had that 19 tag this year. Oh, is it 19 or is it? 10? That's 19. It's 19. Yeah. Okay, okay, 19. Because um, that goes all the way to like Bishop's Cap, yeah. and 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 then you can go up to the Oregon's and yeah. on up. Yeah. Yeah, that that whole Oregon mountain range there east Las Cruces, and yeah. it's. God, that was, was a it? fun hunt. It was a fun hunt. Yeah. There was, I don't want to give out too many secrets, but that was That's probably one of, it's. there's only 10 tags. Right, and I drew a non-resident. Yep, so you so, drew the one. Yeah, um, I mean, that was very fortunate. That yep. was the same year. Is that was the same year as your Ibex hunt? My first one, I think. I think I, think I hunted Because you were down there quite I a bit. Hunted, yeah, I was there for like three weeks. Yeah. Because I hunt. yeah, that's right, because I hunted that um and then and then it went right into ibex and that's when we ran into you guys you guys yeah. were hunting javelinas yeah and we we're we were on that i think this what the southwest side that south end or, yeah. yeah working around there it's with like, Derek. Hey, i know him yeah and i'm like hey <laughs> what are you doing yeah that was that's fun. always the cool part about that mountain i don't know how many times we've been out there and you run into somebody nine times out of ten it's somebody that you know somehow right. and um that's the cool part with this hunting community too, man. Yeah. You just run into people all the time, but but man, that nineteen hunt was a blast. Um, we saw tons of deer, right. tons of deer, and it it's right there, you know, it's right. home. But at the same time, man, I had some heartburn because there's new houses going up left and right out I there, know. and I'm like, what are what are we gonna do to help with this habitat loss, you know? So I kind of had some heartburn during the hunt for you that. Know, but and, 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 and growing up like I was, you know, farming and stuff out there, my grandpa said buy land because nobody's, nobody's making any more of it. So you buy land for an investment. And I'm a, I'm a private landowner, right, guy. You know, don't come on to my little eight-acre farm I have in yep. Windsor, Colorado, although we're, it's not a real farm. It's... It's your farm. It's it's a little, yeah. And, uh, um, you know, I've got a couple barns and got my shooting range out there. You're right. Don't come on and tell me what I can do on here. Okay. But on the flip side, there is the greater good. It all matters what is, what's important to you. Mm-hmm. And so it's nice to see organizations get together, RMEF, Mule Deer Foundation, to get together, to pull resources, to even sometimes purchase properties that can then go into or projects that can go onto public land and go into that. And it's, it is helping the greater good. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It's helping herd health mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and it's growing that. So, uh, I mean, I'm a big com- proponent of it and have been for a long time um because of it's so near and dear to my heart especially especially in new mexico yep you know i it was for me you hunted mule deer you know up in the gila you know that type of country well what i didn't realize is there was good mule deer hunting out around us yeah but it was harder because you couldn't get on a hill and see for miles exactly so it was a different style that i just wasn't accustomed and part of it was for us to get away from home yeah absolutely distance right so we'd go up there it's cooler up there you know november in 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 new mexico i remember as a kid thinking i'd walk outside in october and it'd be 70 degrees or hotter in in cruces right and you're like man it needs to be colder because you knew deer moved more when it was colder and that's what you wanted you want to be able to see more you know so and i just was oh it'll be i wonder what the temperature is up there you know 
it's just just interesting that's the cool thing with new mexico too and with the deer that we have there is that there is so many different kinds of habitat types yes you go from these tall ponderosa pines down to sage you know desert steps to mesquite creosote desert and they thrive they thrive so well and all of them but you know if you were to take one of those mesquite eating mule deer and haul them up to the Taos Plateau, right. they they wouldn't survive. Right, right. And so it's cool to see how adaptable they can be to certain environments and different characteristics. You know, you can look at a buck and be like, oh yeah, that's a northern New Mexico buck. Right, or, oh yeah, exactly. that's going to be more of a southern oh, buck. Oh, for sure. And even that eastern side of the state, mm-hmm. you know, you got all these grass flats and the, you know, sand Rosal dunes. Area and, and that stuff. Oh yeah. No, I totally agree with that. It's, it's funny because it's like, uh, I hunted elk in Kentucky last couple of years. You kill a bull in Kentucky and you look at, you can, it's totally different than any bull out west yeah let alone the bulls in the gila or that eastern arizona area then you look at a bull that came out of you know komodo or Mm -hmm. or uh, not komodo um chama Chama. there you go chama or uh, any of that northern Northern. country and well they're, they're right there next to Colorado yep. and you're sh- you're hunting that same strand if you will yeah the yeah. genetic diversity yeah. you can tell mm-hmm. kind of changes and you know habitat has a lot to do with that too and but they took those elk yeah. from Utah and Montana right bring them to Kentucky and within 20 years they are have learned to adapt to that hot humid environment I mean I'm a, it's September and it's 80 degrees with 80% humidity uh. it's miserable <laughs> But the elk are surviving. I think mule deer are adaptable. I just don't think they're as rapidly adaptable no. as whitetail. No. And But that's why I think it's important what you're doing yeah. because you're allowing, whether it be migration patterns, you're giving them that the ease of, of that flow because mm-hmm. they need that. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, you know, some of the other projects. So uh, to me, it's fascinating. I have gotten more into land management and what deer need because of whitetail hunting. But really? now I look back because I had oh. I never hunted whitetail till I was 33 because yeah. we just didn't hunt whitetail I mean, in New Mexico, right? Yeah. But it's such a chess match because you're hunting a deer that was born in, and will die on two square miles maybe maybe even smaller maybe 400 acres well if you take it and you make it bigger that can apply to mule deer in some regards in the fact that you know they they all need cover thermal cover for hot thermal cover for 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 cold they all need prime forage and they all need water and the only other factor that we don't take into account is pressure Right. And that can come if you're in Idaho in the form of wolves. Yep. Or if you're in Colorado in the form of people. People. Well, and that's, and that's the, the hardest one. Man, there's so many different factors that affect the success of mule deer. I mean, we talk a lot about habitat, but, um, you know, mule deer are the only big game species in North America that are on the decline without one solid reason why. I didn't know that. Wow. I mean, it, predation, urban development, disease, mm-hmm. habitat loss. I, I mean, there's a large list of factors that go into play, but what affects a population in one part of our state or even part of the country will affect a population differently or something else might affect them um, of fluctuations. And so, and we see this a lot in New Mexico. I know you see it a ton in Colorado. You know, 
you think, oh, well, it's not that big of a deal if we move into the mountains because the deer are going to live in my backyard anyways and they're going to come and eat my flowers. And that disruption of their normalcy, I guess. Even though, yeah, your house is there and they're still going to come eat on your grass and you think that they look nice and healthy, it, it doesn't do us any good in the long run of doing that and allowing these deer to kind of live in these urban environments too, which I even hate saying that of allowing these deer to live there because it shouldn't be us living there. Right. Um, But on the flip side of that, you know, there's a lot of things that we have to do with that urban development and, and having a approach on management of urban populations too, because you're going to see an increase in disease because they're all going to be living there. They're not going to have that pressure, like you mentioned, of getting pushed around everywhere. They're going to go to the neighbor's yard and they're going to sleep there tomorrow night. No big deal. And we'll go eat grandma's petunias tomorrow. Right. Um, you get an increase of predation in town. You see, you guys see it all the time in Colorado. Mm-hmm. All these mountain lions and bears mm-hmm. coming into town to mm-hmm. try to right. eat all the yeah. easy babies, eat mm-hmm. all the easy deer that, you know, and then grandma gets real mad when there's a mountain lion that killed the deer that was eating her petunias earlier. Right, yeah. Um, you know, so there's a there's a lot of balance that has to be met on that, on that scale too when it comes to pressure. Um, you know, because we're pressuring these deer into other areas that maybe we didn't consider them being before right um but they're they're so sensitive still at the same time you know it's fascinating people ask me all the time how can you love something and then go kill it (laughs) you know they ask me that and then that's when i pull out the old box analogy what's your answer my my answer is yeah we have a box that's our habitat and we have people a lot smarter than me mm-hmm. that have des- des- to looked at where we are in the cycle, where we are as far as deer numbers, where we are as far as our habitat. We have to try and maintain a balance. Mm-hmm. And if we remove ourselves, then we will see a spike. But the on the other side of that spike, the bell curve down is going to be actually less. Yeah. So if we never did anything let's just say in a perfect world this hypothetical perfect world and you let nature take care of it, that's fine but we're long past that so we have to step in and you know it's the reason that teddy roosevelt did what he did mm-hmm. in the you know the uh, the uh, whole idea of when you buy a hunting license part of that fund goes back in the idea of hey let's take care of this this is a resource and uh, you know a renewable that, a resource. renewable resource okay. that needs to be managed absolutely so well and it, it thinking about that of that being so revolutionary then yeah and then see how much our population has increased since mm-hmm. then there's no management of humans right. you know you know unless something natural disaster kind of thing happens or the plague comes through you know some kind of those kind of historical biological things to check a population back into place um same with same with deer we don't want to have all these diseases spreading in our deer herds we want to kind of manage a lot of those and keep an eye on because we want to be able to see these populations thrive in the long term um you know seeing a lot of species go extinct or become endangered um because of misuse or or bad management practices, man, I don't know what I would do if, you know, two or three generations from now while we're long and gone, 
if mule deer got on the endangered species list, right. God, that's a scary thought. Right. You know, it's interesting. There's a big argument. You know, Colorado's made a big stand on, which I actually am in, in favor of this not shed hunting till a certain date. Yeah. And the reason I like it, it's not as big a deal in New Mexico, maybe northern New Mexico, northern maybe, New but, Mexico but not in southern New Mexico, because uh, because we don't have the inclement weather. Right. But you know, you get these guys going out there on, and I, and I hate to say it, but with the snow high, they just get on their their skidoos or you know Polaris mm-hmm. friggin' sleds, and off they go. Yep. So now you have this vital resource at his at the, its most. Uh, weak weak point of their whole year. Mm-hmm. They're just they've already rutted. Mm-hmm. They rutted down. There's not that huge ability to build those stores back up to make it through this winter. Mm-hmm. And here we are chasing them around trying to get the antlers that fell off their head. Yeah. And what happened is we got to the point where we kept pushing it back. This is just one man's opinion, mind you. Mm. But I think we got to a point to where we kept to where, okay, they should be dropping soon. Well, let's go see. Oh, there's some deer. Oh, let's chase them. And sure enough, their, their antlers drop. Because, yeah. you know, and he, but the strain we put on that small herd of deer, they might, the rest of them might not make it through, this, through the winter. Right. So Colorado stepped in and said, you know, you can't do this. And everybody threw a fit. And I'm just like, so wait a month. Right. So wait a month. If you told me the only way mule deer can be guaranteed that they'll live for your grandkids was you never hunt a mule deer again, I would Ooh. never hunt a mule deer again. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and it, the, the pressure that they're putting on those animals in those winter ranges, like you said, they're their weakest state. Um, they're most susceptible to... to the elements to death at that point to predation um you know those bucks have gone hard all winter long pushing those does and they're not replenishing their sources too so they're that's what makes them kind of in that state but why does it matter if you have to hurry up and get that shed what is it and i i know what (laughs) my opinion is um but it's like you don't the pressure of you being the hero of finding a shed or going to sell it or whatever is not worth the pressure of what that animal has to right. go through for you to get it. Right. Is how I see it. Yeah, I agree. Everyone I agree. loves shed hunting. Yeah, uh, let's do it. And it See, it, I, I, I like it. I like it on their head. That's yeah, my, that's, I do my too. that's my shed hunting. Yeah. Now, I have a, a buddy of mine, Tanner. Tanner Vernon, who's mm-hmm. one of our field producers. Mm-hmm. Tanner is the ultimate mule deer lover. I mean, he loves mule yeah. deer. He would never do. He would never ever do anything that would affect them negatively. Yeah. And we were, I was hunting Unit Forty Four, probably the best, probably the number one mule deer unit in the, in the nation. Close to it. Argu- let's say arguably, yeah, Unit Forty Four yep. outside of Vail and some of that country. Fourth, fourth rifle, right? Okay. It, I'm passing on 190 inch bucks. Ooh. Yeah, I mean. Who does that? Not me, not this guy, <laughs> but I am because this is a, it's it took me 18 years to yeah. draw this tag and I didn't even draw it. What I got, I got a phone call because somebody turned it back in and no I was way. next on the list. That's so awesome. it was awesome. The best, I, ne- I never pulled the trigger because I, I had set my mark and I had two deer I wanted to kill yeah. and I couldn't get them killed because they kept they, private and public. And yep. Anyway, that's another story. But. We were eating dinner at like a Wendy's or something one night, and a guy came in, and Tanner has shedding. That's his license plate. He loves to shed hunt. But he loves to shed hunt because he loves mule deer. Yeah. And he just loves everything about him. Yeah. But he's like, I'm great. I would never push a deer. I'm fine with 
I'll wait for two weeks after the, you know, the yeah. date, and yeah. I'll still go find a ton yeah. of shit. Yeah. Um, a guy comes in and just berates. He goes, "Is that your truck?" And he went off on him about you're just you're killing all the elk. You're killing. You oh, guys go out. and he makes his blank. So I'm not saying shed, there is shedding shed hunting is bad. I'm not saying that no, at all. No, it's not. I was just in a huge fan of the idea of hey guys, let's give him a little more time. Time, yeah, time. Yeah, there's nothing no, wrong with having no. some time, and um, you know, there's not really any point of having somebody belittle you over something like well, that yeah, too. He was but an idiot. you know, that's, uh, that's probably idiot, a whole that's other topic. Here. Yeah, that's neither here nor there. <laughs> so. Um, so you, you drew another Ibex tag, right? Switching I, gears here. You, I, uh, I killed, I killed in sixteen. Uh-huh. I killed uh, that little Billy finally on the last thirty minutes of the thirtieth day. day. Oh, thank you, Lord. Um, and then, didn't you draw the so next year, or did you draw that same year later and? I can't remember. I remember you killed one after I did. So I drew a couple tags. I, I got the, um, at the time when they were doing it, the management hunts, the depredation hunts. Right, right, so right, right, Game right, of right. Fish, you know, has, says, so you oh, go, hey, we want to have this many Go tags. kill an Annie, go to- check yep. it in, and then didn't that put you into, once you killed two, you got into the draw, another draw or something? They it was, changed it so much okay. each year, but if you if you killed a nanny or an immature and you checked it in, you could be put in a draw for the uh, a rifle billy tag. Actually, I think it was either sex. Um, but a rifle tag, the trophy tag, but it didn't count as your once-in-a-lifetime tag. I did not draw that tag, but my husband did. Okay. And so, he, and so he had gotten called for the depredation management hunt. He killed a, a little immature billy. Um, met the requirements on that because there's a lot of ibex on that mountain, so there's they kind of yeah. tried to keep him in check. And um, and then he drew the that uh, billy tag, so he was pretty stoked. But I drew two depredation hunts as well, and then I drew the archery hunt. I'm trying to think of when that was. Twenty eighteen? Yeah, I think it was it was a year or two after. Had to have been eighteen. Man, that hunt. God, that rock's addicting. Yeah. I mean, and I had those two nanny hunts the the years before and loved it. I mean, but we've gone out there and we've we've hunted Ibex and helped, you know, our friends with Ibex oh, right. and stuff for years. And right. so it was like, yeah, well, now we finally get our chance and um Man, I love hunting Ibex. You know, Derek Harris has never drawn an Ibex tag. I believe it. Yet that man he has killed he has, more. He's been involved in more <laughs> Ibex hitting the dirt than anyone I can think of. I mean, yeah. I mean, there's some awesome outfitters that know that rock and that pattern like the back of their hand, and it's amazing to see them do work on getting hunters in the right spot for opportunities. And but man, is it cool to go, kind of go up there on a DIY thing and you know learn so much more about them and just like, just when you think you got them figured out, yeah. they change things up and be like, all right, they're going to do this. And then so you plan for that and they do the total opposite. And you've seen them and do, then some. you've seen them do what they did there five times before. And you're like, oh, I just <laughs> yeah. know it. And for some reason they do the total, exactly. It was, it was the most exhilarating and frustrating. Frustrating and, and, and it's such a high physicality of the hunt because I explained to people who've never been on the rock that it's one step forward, two steps back. A hundred percent. Because the rock, even though it is a volcanic type of uh, igneous uh, formation, it's old. Mm -hmm. So it crumbles. So you go and you think, oh, I'm going to step on this edged 
sharp angle. I should get good traction with these good boots I have. And you step and it crumbles. And the next thing you know, you're on your knees. Yep. And then, not to mention, every plant up there <laughs> pokes you. I always joke around that everything on that mountain tries to kill you. Yeah. Everything. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. The plants, the rocks, the, the ibex, rattlesnakes. The rattlesnakes. Yep. You name it. Everything up there is just mad and angry. And you're like, why am I up here? And you're miserable through the hunt. And then the day you get home, you're like, All I right, can't let's wait go to back. go back. <laughs> you know, when I got up there that first year and we were up in there and camped back up in there, I mean, I didn't ever really get, I mean, we saw freaking ibex every day i yeah. mean it wasn't yeah. a matter of finding ibex yeah. um i got really caught up in the idea of the old you know mexican bandits that used, <laughs> you know think about that what what great place to hide god you go up some of the back yeah, yeah that back side yeah. you know how you come around the south side and you can come around and there's that trail that mm -hmm. goes back in. it's a big box canyon i mean you could live in there live for in there. five years and never, no one would know. No one would know. And then Geronimo and yeah. you know the yeah. Indians that would. So it's for, a cool, it is. cool place. We when I had that archery hunt, we backpacked in and we camped up top for nine days. By the old I think. cabin? No, we were north of the cabin. Okay. Okay. Um, I ended up tearing my ACL six weeks before that ibex hunt, packing out a elk. And um, I fell and just twisted my knee just right. And Popped so, it. yeah. And I was like, you know what? I'm not going to be going up and down this mountain every day. Right. We are going to stay up there. We're going right. to haul up water. We're going to haul up all our food. Um, my husband was a rock star and would come down every kind of couple of days to get a water run for us. Because there's no water up there. It's right. not like you can take right. a straw or a filter or anything. And um, we kind of sat around in the same spots because I... I couldn't physically get around as well as I needed to for that hunt right. too, which sucked. But I was like, nope, I still gotta go. I still gotta try. I still gotta do yeah. it. And uh, but like I said, every time you take a step there, you just feel like everything, like the world's crumbling at your feet, literally. Uh, and distance is deceiving, especially when you get on the top. You look over and you go, oh, I'm gonna go over there. You oh, think yeah. it's gonna take you no time at all, but in fact, it's much. It's Far. much further. Yeah. I found that too. I'd be like, oh, okay. Uh, it's probably a mile. There's, you know, those Ibex are in that cliff face or whatever. I think they're going to work out here. I'm going to work around here. Mm -hmm. Well, crud, it's not man. Quite. To get over there, it was a lot longer than you'd think. So Steep and rocky yeah. and loose. God, I loved it though. I know. I loved it. Just talking I, about it now, I'm like, I've yeah. been <laughs> I've been putting in, you know, my daughter and my, uh, my nephew, uh, my, my, little sister and brother-in-law live in Deming mm -hmm. and my nephew's 14 my daughter's 14 and um, so I'm putting them in for that youth rifle good every because we spend Christmas there yeah. Yeah. so I'm like well how perfect would this be January 1st and we start hunting with a rifle and you know that's something you can get 300 yards from oh yeah uh, you oh, know yeah. it's 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 that 60 and under that's so hard uh, or you get there and you can't, you don't have a shot because they're so far below you in the steep. cliffs and you, you there's no way unless you yeah. had ropes that you yeah. could hang out over. Yeah. I think the two I shot with a rifle, the, the furthest one was, I think it was like 430. I mean, but you can take huge, huge shots out there. I mean, long, long, long shots, but it's totally doable 
even in a lot of places too i know a lot of people that have shot him 100 yards right you know so um it's totally doable man with a bow and everything's so steep and crazy there too and how far was the one you shot 18 yards well, and what happened with that is we'd seen him working up the, what we call the eyebrow, uh-huh. okay? And um, and they'd worked up as Ibex do and worked down. Tanner and I had gone up to get on top of them because we knew they were coming up mm-hmm. and then they'd go down. So then we'd start, to, we went up twice and we're <laughs> running out of daylight, right? We, I mean, yeah. so finally they committed to come up because, you know, Ibex are, they do with it. And it was a bunch of, of nannies and immature billies. Yeah. But I didn't care, right? Yeah. I didn't uh, not any care. Ibex I, any with Ibex with the bow is great. By the time we got up, I remember I got up on the top and I fell just because I stepped on something and it rolled out from underneath my foot and I fell and I laid down there and Tanner goes to help me up and he was a rock star running camera because he's just so young and I mean, long legs and I'd take two, you know, it was hard to keep up with him and he's a cameraman and I just remember going, man, I don't know if I can do it and he just said, you can do it, man, all we we got to do is get you know, we got to just get to that spot. And it was like, okay, okay, yeah. And so we, we get up and we run. And I remember going over and I could hear them coming. And so we're coming up over the cliff face and they're working up, which I I think, how are they going to get up here? But I mean, they just they go just right up. They just shimmy right up everything. And the next thing I know, there's five Ibex right coming right. And the biggest <gasps> one, which was probably 18 inch, mm-hmm. still a, a younger Billy, but he had already crossed over. Mm-hmm. I saw him right as I topped over, and I'm like, oh, and I knew he was in the lead. So then I just got ready, and I came up, and it was interesting because they ran out to this point, and I was already at full draw, and there were three of them, and it was like they came to the edge, and it was like, who's going first? Who's going first? <laughs> you know, and that was the only thing that got me to a point to where I could make the shot yeah. because I needed them to pause because normally they just – Keep, keep going. going they never stop but they got up there i spooked them because they turned and saw me spooked them enough to where they instead of them going over the way that other billy had gone they turned and they're cliffed i mean it's a drop off they have to go to the right or they have to go to the left but they stopped and it was like they looked at each other and then looked back at me well arrow arrow was <laughs> done, in the air done so it was it turned out it was a lot closer shot than anything I had even had an opportunity. Or planned for. Uh-huh. Cause you, I mean, then I archery did, Ibex is like, okay, make sure you have a pin out to 100. I did have, <laughs> I did have, a, I could have killed a, a nicer billy at 23 yards, and I was at full draw, and Tanner and I had a miscommunication. Right, I remember that. So I'm at full draw, and I'm like, I'm ready to shoot as soon as he tops out up over where the other Ibex that were in front of him had gone, and I'm waiting for the back one. Mm-hmm. And he comes up, and I'm just about to shoot, and Tanner says, the back one. And I think he's saying, there's a bigger one in the back. Oh. Is what goes through my mind. So I wait. So you're waiting. And he goes, goes over. But he paused, like, just, it would have been perfect. So Everything the, happens for a reason, yeah, right? Yeah, Well, and I was, I was frustrated. I was, I, I don't want to say I was mad. I was disappointed because I knew this was, that was your five shot. days into the second hunt. And yeah. I'm like... It's going to happen. Yeah. But it didn't. And Isn't so. Isn't it crazy, like, how much of a mental game oh. it is? Anywhere, any hunt, right? 
But that, I mean, the rock's always the worst, in my opinion, for mental, because it, you have highs and lows and highs and lows, and you're like, I am utterly defeated all the time, but I'm going to keep going. And it's like the ultimate, like, perseverance of, like, I'm going to get this done. But, and I've, I've started doing a lot more solo hunts lately, mm-hmm. the past few years, and, um, which is a challenge to do physics. I mean, as a woman going out by yourself right. with a bow to go hunt mule deer in another state where you don't even know where you're going. Is, is one challenge but man just being out there by yourself and being like finding a buck and trying to make a play on it and you don't have anyone to bounce ideas off of to be like no that's a great idea no that's stupid go this way or right. make sure to you know watch this or have someone walk in and man that mental thing has been like crazy for me the past couple of years so i'm such a social person i don't enjoy solo hunts yeah well number one it does, it's not conducive for filming right okay because i don't film I, you can't you can self-film a whitetail hunt but to self-film a spot and stock mule deer hunts really hard um, but I don't enjoy it yeah. because I'm a people person. You want to be with somebody. I do. Yeah. Yeah. And so that's, I think, why I love filming my hunts. Yeah. I always have somebody. And the guys, I, you know, the guy wouldn't be running camera if we didn't get along. Right. That's the first right. thing. It's just like, I'm not going to share camp with someone I don't enjoy. Mm-hmm. Right? And so, spend days on and end. Stay di- yeah, exactly. And um, I, I agree with that. I, I think the first hunt, the first 15 days in 2014, we camped out. The problem that came with that, if I really wanted to kill an Ibex, is I didn't get to use my spotters effectively. Because mm. now I'm literally spotting and stalking them on my, on my own, where the spotters at the bottom, you have that communication. Mm-hmm. That's so, so the second time I said, okay, this time... I'm not going to go in and stay. I'm, it's, it might be harder, but I'm going to go up and down, up and down, up and down, right? But that way I could use my spotters. So every morning I, we stayed at my sister's house, mm-hmm. and we'd leave at 4.30 in the morning. Off we'd go. We'd go to Yaya's, get us some <laughs> red chili burritos. Thank you. And then um, up, up we'd go. And every morning I just maintained that I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to hunt today like it's my last day yeah it's kind of the mentality you have to have you have to grind for for every hunt i mean not even just that in my opinion but that hunt especially because what you can have happen one day may be horrible you didn't see anything you blew a stalks i mean something your bow blew up something but the next day it could be just the flip of the switch to turn it it around for you and it's like this is so easy and then be like see wasn't all that worth it you know to go through all that struggle and I do agree that 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 those types of trials and tribulations lead to a a, I don't want to say I don't want to classify one person's uh, adventure as less cool than another I don't want to say that but what I do say is I know for me, if you look at the score of an animal, my little Billy is one of the smallest. But yet, to me, it's one of the greatest trophies. 50-inch Billy all day. Exactly. <laughs> you exactly. Know, it's, so, and it's, it's about that experience, you know, yeah. what you do for it. I mean, you don't have to do all these other extra things for all the other, other people. Um, you know, just kind of enjoying those moments for yourself. We've really kind of taken that seriously the past few years too because i mean before you really start to kind of grow and develop i think more as a hunter too the more you do it like when you first start hunting like you just you want to get in the field and you want to get an opportunity and you want to shoot something and then you know it kind of turns into all right 
I, I just now I just want to kill some all the time. I just want right. to kill something. But then it goes into like, okay, now I'm gonna be a little bit more picky. Right. I'm gonna maybe get a more mature animal or. Or even in this Ibex case, any one. doesn't matter right. if it's a trophy or not. It's just the A1. And then it kind of starts to turn into like, well, now I just want to take somebody else out. I want to right. have more fun with the social thing. Yeah. The progression of it's really cool. And it's cool for me to reflect and look back on how a lot of that's transpired just in my life. And, right. I mean, I started hunting when I was 12. And, right. you know, that's been a long time ago. <laughs> Over and, 20 years. And, and, then, and, and then you find yourself... You just want to take somebody else who's never experienced that. So I made it my New Year's resolution this year to take three new hunters out. Oh, awesome. Or three new people, whether Mm -hmm. they have hunted or not. And that's like something I keep like encouraging everyone else to do of like, you know, just take them out. Like they don't have to kill anything, but they're going to have a blast going out. One of my really, really good friends, uh, she had a javelina tag a couple of years ago. And uh, we took her out a few times. I love bow hunting javelina probably more than anybody in this planet. They're my favorite thing in the entire world. And uh, and I think m- the energy of me loving that so much, she was like, well, I want to try it. And she drew a rifle tag, and uh, we went out, and she didn't get one. But she's like, man, I had a blast. And you know what she's doing this year? She's applying for Oryx. She's oh, applying for Mule Deer. That's awesome. And I'm like, yes, we're going to go. And she's she's been around a lot of hunting stuff before. But hasn't really done it herself. Right. I'm like, man, that's cool to inspire yeah. somebody to that level to take, because we know what it takes from us internally, right? right? To do that physically, emotionally, mentally, get everything prepared, and it, for that to inspire somebody else to take that upon themselves. I'm like, man, that's cool. Yeah, <laughs> that is cool. And and if she draws an oryx tag, man, I'm gonna be just tickled to death. Be like, can I go? Yeah, you killed a good one. I did. How was that? Where That was off-range, huh? It was off-range. So I've been applying for Oryx for like 15 years. Mm-hmm. You know, New Mexico doesn't have a, a point system. So right. it's just luck of the draw. And I've, you know, been putting in for the on-range, once-in-a-lifetime hunts forever. And I I'm drew like, it I'm the first year I applied. Of course you did. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, uh, but I'm that like, was back when they weren't all broken. Right. That was, was back was when you would, trophy yeah, you would go. And I mean, I probably looked at 25 before I shot the one I shot. Yeah. Um, you want to talk about a hunt that'll humble you? It was this off-range oryx tag. Was it? I was shocked. Um, you know, I've hunted a, most of my life, actually three quarters of my life, and um, three quarters of the year it seems like it, it, you know preparing for hunts and getting ready for hunts and hunting and hunting with other people for ourselves. And um, so I drew this off-range tag, and I was I was more tickled to death to have this tag than anything else. And, you know, and I drew a, a deer tag in Utah, I drew another deer tag in uh, New Mexico, too. And I was like, but I drew an Oryx tag. I've been waiting 15 years mm-hmm. that I finally get to be behind the trigger and on which, this. And which month was it for? Uh, December. It was a December hunt. Okay. So here was the cool part is I drew that December tag uh, off range. And then I had that Unit 19 deer tag oh, in yeah. January. Yeah. So I'm like, well, I can hunt all December and also scout for deer right. the whole time because you know right there behind our house you right. can you can go and hunt and um, we went out I think maybe six days you know kind of weekends and afternoons um, in December because it's a, it's a month long hunt so it's not like you have to right. take off exactly. all this time to go you and we you can live work it into your schedule yeah we yeah. also live right there too right. so we can kind of it was nice to be able to hunt from the house tell yeah. you what. And um, so we'd go out. We wouldn't see a single one off range. 
we would see them pretty often, but they'd be on range. They know where that dang border is. Right. And, uh, and it was just like daunting of like, man, again, another day. We didn't see any. And you're just like not even getting the, the opportunity at it. But it's like, just keep going back out there. Just keep, keep after it. Keep going. And uh, finally we got lucky. We, we found someone morning. Um, all of a sudden they were like everywhere. <laughs> Really? We found uh, two that were by themselves, kind of separate. Um, but one of them was with a bunch of uh, cattle. And I was like, I think really? she's confused. And um, we're going to try to make a play on her. But with all the cattle it's that were there, we were worried about them blowing out. Because cattle in New Mexico are squirrely. And right. they see a human and it's just not right to them. And um, so then we keep glass and we look. And all of a sudden we see another group um, that was... Uh, three mature cows and then three like immature brownies um, not quite babies but just right. immatures and we're like well we're looking at the maps and looking at the maps and we're like yep they're definitely off range like let's make a play on those so we make this big old stock and they ended up bedding and just hanging out and we got we crawled in to about 300 yards and we're like alright I'm just there was two in there that were shooters and to me I was like I'd like to shoot a nice one. Um, it's my first oryx ever, so I'm not going to be super picky and right. be all crazy trophy hunter. I'm like, I, and I love oryx meat. Oh, it yes. is my favorite. Oh, it's so good. Favorite. Um, now behind bighorn. Rusty killed a, a rocky oh, sheep yeah. a few years ago, and that has actually become my favorite. But oryx, I guess, is my number two now. Um, so I was like, I just want to put some meat in the freezer too. And so, the, but there was two really good cows in that group, and I was like, whichever one stands up and gives me a shot first. And this one finally gets up. We, I'm laying on my belly prone in the shooting position for like half an hour. And she finally stands up. And I just, I'm a bucket of nerves at that point. And I hardly ever get like that. Mm -hmm. and, and Rusty's looking at me. He's like, are you going to shoot? Are you going to shoot? And I'm like, yeah, just give me a minute. <laughs> and uh, ended up shooting her. And she just, she dropped right there. And they're super tough animals too. So oh, I was yeah. glad that she stayed and, and didn't run off. And um, man, that is probably one of like the highlights of my hunting career i guess um fun at a lot of things but that oryx was pretty dang cool this year yeah that's and she awesome. was, you know and size wise i mean I, again i didn't really care if it was going to be a, a trophy or not but she's 35 and a half i know she looks off range uh, that's pretty dang good oryx yeah. off range so she's at the taxidermist <laughs> That's awesome. I had a, a few taxidermy bills this year, and so it's fine. It'll work That's out. That's okay. It actually, all works out in the, in the actually, end. Actually, the buck I shot in Utah this last fall is here um, at the draw booth. Do you remember Jordan? Mm-hmm. Uh, Christensen, they've got their booth, and um, I picked up my buck from the taxidermist on Tuesday and brought him over and got him hung up, and so it was cool to see that buck and kind of relive all of you know, that process, too, and that was one of those solo That's hunts, awesome. but... Uh, How many chapters are in New Mexico now? We've got 10. Wow, that's amazing. Started with one. Yeah. Two. Three. Just kept growing and growing. And man, it's cool to see just that energy of people get into it. And, and like I said, well, we've got more volunteers and members here this year than we have in a long time. And I know they're going to see all this and be as, as, as excited about you yeah. know doing more things as I was when I first came to the show. Um, but, you know, it's spring's going to get started with banquet seasons we start our banquets next weekend <laughs> get done with expo and jump right into more shows and um 
but it's a blast. It really is. It's a, it's a dream job. Um, I get to talk about mule deer every day. That's awesome. And they pay me for that. Yeah. <laughs> They're crazy. That, it, does, it doesn't. Can you believe it's been an? We've been talking an hour no. about mule deer. Well, a, I'm telling you, I can yeah. talk about mule deer till I'm blue in the face. So. Well, thank you so much for taking time out of your show Absolutely. and coming and visiting with me. I. Uh, it's always good to see you here, and then occasionally see you out somewhere crazy yeah. like in the wild we run into each other yeah. on the mountain no big deal but uh thanks for all you're doing especially uh, you know to me new mexico is still so such a i'm so connected to first of all my family's still there yeah mom and dad still live there and of course my nephews i got i got you know the three boys there in deming and they're all into hunting i'm bringing them up uh, to we're gonna hunt turkeys in nebraska this nice. year together nice. and i was hoping that charlie would draw you know that, but I'm going to apply for yeah. all of that again. Do it. And um, Good. New Mexico does for the youth. It has some great opportunities for youth yeah. hunts. I do say that. I wish Colorado would have some. Colorado does have some great. Every, mm-hmm. Everybody has their highs and their lows. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, you know, high points and low points. But um, so, yeah. Where can people find out about Mule Deer Foundation? I mean, maybe if they're looking for a local chapter, mm-hmm. to talk us through that before so we sign off. We are also a membership-based organization, so our members and our volunteers are the life and blood of this organization. Can't do what we do without them. So if you wanted to become a member, become you know, join the ranks of thousands of other people that feel the same way about um, mule deer, mule deer hunting, conservation as you do, uh, I strongly encourage uh, everyone to become a member of the Mule Deer Foundation. So you can go online, you go to our website, www.muledeer.org. Um, my contact information is on the website too, so if anyone's ever interested in uh, getting in touch or you know want to talk about mule deer some more, um, shoot me an email, give me a phone call. You can um, see our list of chapters and stuff available on there too. If there's not a chapter in your area, call me, let's start one. Uh, we'll totally kind of get that up and going and continue to spread more conservation awareness across the state too. Um, we'd love to have some more chapters in the state. And we're also on Facebook and Instagram. Yeah, I know uh, New Mexico Mule Deer Foundation, I think, mm-hmm. is the Instagram, mm-hmm. Facebook. Um, so yeah, Mule Deer Foundation, New Mexico, um, on Instagram and, okay. and on Facebook. Um, you know, we're posting a lot of stuff on there on the events and such that are coming up, how more people can get involved, um, some of the projects that we have going on. I love seeing um, any sort of photos of New Mexico deer. So if anyone ever um, wants to send us their love, we'd love to share it. I creep on there. I'm a creeper. <laughs> You'll occasionally catch me on there. I'll, I'll make it. a comment once or twice on some picture on the New Mexico. Do uh, it. It's, yeah. uh, it's a good way to connect you know, a lot of people, and it's um, surprisingly been a, a very useful tool for, for us to recruit new members um, and recruit new chapters. Good. So we've had a lot of people reach out, which has been very beneficial. So, um, yeah, my contact information's on the website, too. I'd be happy to visit with anyone and answer any questions and encourage everyone to become a member. Awesome. Awesome. Well, thanks again for your time. Thank and you, sir. As always, as I always close every podcast with someone telling, you know, everybody's uh, where they live is different. I want to encourage people to go out and find what, what wild place inspires them and embrace it. Absolutely. All right. Thanks, See you Charlie. down the trail.